Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Today, I'm happy to say I'm reporting from the front lines of a revolution, not the normal revolution with barricades and weapons and crowds, but a silent and pervasive revolution. It is taking place in the electric industry. The electricity you depend on to watch this broadcast and for everything in your home and your business is going through changes that are profound and which you will not know about immediately, but later on you may indeed. Behind me are some of the tools of this revolution, and that is the transportation aspect of it. These vehicles, all of them, from the massive freight liner to a very sleek car, which has a range of 530 miles, all of them are part of the revolution, the turn from hydrocarbon fuels to electricity. And electricity is now projected to be the fuel of the future for nearly everything, for transportation, but also for such purposes as manufacturing, uh, things we had never thought of using it for, it will be used for, whether it's making steel or making garbage bags. I am at the Edison Electric Institute's annual convention, this time in Orlando, Florida, and we are here to watch the unfolding of this revolution, its stages, its problems, its accelerations, and ultimately how it will change not only what comes out of the plug in your house, but how you use it. Whether you will have one of these electric vehicles and use it as a backup system, maybe as a storage system and sell the electricity back to the utility you bought it from. Maybe you will have a smart meter, much smarter than the smart meter you have now, which will ration how you use seamlessly and without your knowledge, but once you have signed on to do it, ration how you use electricity, whether it comes on in the middle of the night and you use electricity when it's plentiful for such things as running the dishwasher. All of this is part of the revolution and driving the revolution is the solid and immutable determination to stop pushing carbon into the air and contributing to global warming. It's a great ride, a fantastic undertaking. Not since Thomas Edison has the electric industry been so shaken, so profoundly changed. And along with it, we will be profoundly changed in how we use electricity. I trust, though, that we will not be shaken. Transmission is the there's no doubt about it. And there's going to be significant investments. And so what the law will do is give us an opportunity to invest in transmission. But importantly, I think, break up some problems that we have. Certainly in the Sarah country, Nigeria, you know, we, we deal with these things all the time. And, and we really need to make sure that we're moving forward in transmission. And it isn't just going to be solidified by our infrastructure law. And the reality is, is it's a full court press. Know, across the country, work with the RTOs and otherwise to make sure we're making these transmission investments in a timely fashion so we can enable this clean energy transition. There is no clean energy transition unless we have a robust 
transmission. And, uh, and so we're focused on it, industry's focused on it. We need to make sure we have good policies to support those investments in transmission because these aren't small, they're big, and they're not allowed. So consistency and regulatory frameworks and understanding that is really good. Philip Muller is Executive Vice President of the Edison Electric Institute and a former member of the regulatory organization, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Phil, welcome. Uh, where do you see the industry going? Well, the industry is in an exciting transition period where we're getting cleaner in a very fast manner. The challenge has been that this is a transition that we need to make sure people are aware of. And as we transition with different fuels, we have to make sure that reliability and affordability are also part of the equation. And is this transition going fast enough? It's going fast. We have to make sure that the infrastructure can keep up with it. Because in many cases, the let's say the renewable energy, the clean green energy that's being developed is usually developed away from where the customers are and where they consume it. So yeah. making sure we have the transmission capacity to move that power is essential. Uh, I hear a lot about transmission. I hear a lot about uh, hoping that we'll be uh, carbon neutral by 2050 nationally, every utility. And uh, I hear a lot about the desirability of nuclear power, but I don't hear how it's going to come back into the marketplace as it was in the 1960s and 70s. Um, transmission, everybody says that's a regulatory problem, is it? Well, regulatory uh, is certainly part of it because it's generally very difficult to build. The reason is that... The reason, we're, we're talking about getting, say, solar power from the West to New York City. That's why transmission's important. Well, we have three major grids in this country. There's one in the eastern part of the country, there's one in the west, and there's one solely within Texas called ERCOT. And that roughly runs along the Continental Divide, not quite. So right now, those grids are separate, except for a few distinct ties between them. And so what we're really talking about is within these regions moving power through transmission. And transmission can be difficult to build because of the siting issues that you've talked about, but also the cost allocation side of it as to who pays what when it goes through multiple jurisdictions, when it's a, an asset that will be around for 30, 40, maybe 50, 60, 70 years, and the use of that, the the changes in transmission use, the loads, different fuels that might be developed, <clears throat> that all makes it difficult to decide who pays what at the beginning. And uh, what about the people along the way who are not getting any direct benefit from the wires overhead? If the wires are running from the west to the east, uh, the people in the middle are not necessarily benefiting at all. They don't need that power, they're not getting that power, it's going somewhere else. Uh, should they be paid to host the lines? Can we accelerate things that way? Well, it depends on whether it's alternating current or direct current, AC or DC. Alternating currents are less efficient than direct current lines, but they allow an easier way for off-ramps of the transmission facility. You can also do that with direct current. It's a little more expensive and a little more difficult, 
But your, your point is a good one. You want to make sure that if a transmission line goes through an area, then that that area also benefits from the infrastructure that's being developed. Resilience is a word that is on every utility executive tongue. Uh, but as we move into this new world of electrification, electrified transportation, electrified manufacturing, electrified chemical production, things that have never been electrified before in every process of industrial and private life, are we going to have the resilience? Is the grid up to it? Or are we going to face a new vulnerability, not dissimilar from the vulnerability we faced with oil at one time? Well, we need to maintain and expand the current transmission grid. That's, that is essential. I just moderated a panel on this yesterday, and you alluded to extreme weather. We've had five of the most devastating wildfires Five of the top ten wildfires in history, the most devastating have occurred in the last decade. Four out of the ten worst hurricanes have occurred in the last decade. And so that obviously stresses the infrastructure to great degree. And focusing on resilience, adaptation, hardening of the system is something our members are doing. In fact, about a third of our capital expenditures can be categorized in that area. But the importance of transmission not only for resilience, not only for reliability, not only for the economic benefits it provides, is essential because it gives us optionality if public policies change, if new fuels are suddenly part of the system. Transmission is like an interstate highway. It gives you the optionality to go somewhere else, move power a different direction, and that's why it's so critical, and it's basically the smallest part of your bill as a, as a customer. You mentioned hardening. It seems to me that with a greater dependence on electricity, we need to harden the system. But how we do that is both very extensive and not very exact. Uh, is this undergrounding lines? Is this stronger poles, higher poles? Uh, what is it? It's all of those things, depending on what makes sense for that area. In some places, undergrounding does make sense, even though it's more expensive. Phil Miller, I noticed that you're wearing a tie, which is a throwback to, <coughs> to Franklin, the first great electrician of this nation, maybe the father of electricity in many ways. I, the English would argue about Faraday and people like this. Tell us about your necktie for a change of pace. All right. Well, this tie represents the kite and the key and that famous evening that Ben Franklin conducted his experiment with his son and the beginnings of, of, at least we Americans would say, the father of electricity. And I wore it specifically for you, Llewellyn. Well, so thank you, you very it. much. I like it very much indeed. And thank you for being on the broadcast. It's, we appreciate it. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. My pleasure. So, you know, when we think about the pandemic, that was really just one crisis that we went through. Warner mentioned um, all of the issues we had with regards to
distribution system, but even more importantly, connected in with our customers. And so we've emerged from this period of time that more reflective and more focused on interacting with our customers in a totally new and different way. There's no way that we can keep this system stable just ourselves. It's got to be a partnership and a two-way flow of electricity and with additional solar and renewables and battery storage and the visibility of uh, customers' load that we can now manage in a much more granular and precise way. We're in a completely different way than we were just a couple of years ago. So the pandemic, in my opinion, has taken what would have been five, maybe seven, even ten years of change and consolidated that into two or three years. And so I think we'll look back on this period of time as, yes, hard, but really important in terms of accelerating our transformation. Ron Gerbrandt is the Chief Operating Officer of Enterix, a broadband company helping utilities with cybersecurity and managing the huge quantities of data which utilities rely on now in their planning and in their daily operations. Welcome to the broadcast, but you are in fact uh, somebody who started not in the telecommunications but in utilities themselves, Manitoba Hydro. Uh, tell us about that. Correct, yeah, a little over 20 years ago, I started down this journey of wanting to really see how I could help participate in the energy industry. Uh, now I have an interesting intersection with telecom. I'm actually a telecom engineer by background in Manitoba Hydro, um, the provincially run utility in, in the province of Manitoba, Canada, had a phenomenal telecom engineering team, um, an organization of about 150 engineers where we built, we owned, we operated every aspect of the telecommunications infrastructure to support the operations of the integrated grid. Um, and there it was all the way from the hydroelectric generation through to the supply, I mean, even the transport and sale of energy to a bulk power system in the United States. And it was a fantastic opportunity to learn how important information, control, visibility was to the, the modernizing of the grid, and this is over 20 years ago. We don't normally think of telecommunications as having a big role in electricity, but it's vital and getting more so, correct? Absolutely right. No, and I think this is where the eyes are really starting to get open from a lot of the utility executives of just how fundamental it is to have telecommunications. And really when we speak about telecommunications, it's not so much the communication side of it, it's the data, it's the control, it's the visibility, it's how the How are outcomes. utilities handling and using this data? They're using it across the whole operation. You know, I think when you hear about digitization, um, you know, or the digital transformation at utilities, it's all about information and data systems. The ability to see how the grid is operating, real-time control around every aspect of its of, of its integration, will become even more important when we start talking about renewables. We're, we're talking a lot about you know the the. the because diversity. they're flashing on, flashing right. off, you know, this one is leaving the system, that one's coming on. The bulk power system today is very omnidirectional, right? Power comes from a generating plant that flows to us as consumers, that's changing fundamentally. And the issue that that creates for utilities is that now we need to control a much more dynamic grid. Every asset is now a potential generator and a consumer. Think of us as solar homes. Um, and the ability to monitor that and control it makes the data that we're collecting through our networks at Enterix you know, even more important to you know, ultimately the future operation of the grid. Why is broadband broadband? 
<laughs> Great question. Um, broadband versus narrowband really speaks to its capacity. It speaks to the capability of the network. Um, just as we see as consumers, we hear a lot about 5G. Why is 5G important to us? We all have a consuming demand for streaming information. I need more of it. I need a bigger pipe to be able to transport that information and I want it fast. Utilities are no different. Industrial is no different. And broadband gives them that flexibility. It gives them the capability of the network to build a platform for 10, 15, 20 years. That's very interesting. And uh, what happens if they don't build that platform? That is the question. Um, the cost there of doing- There are 3,000 <laughs> utilities in this country. They're not all going to build that broadband platform, are they? Not at the same time, but absolutely. We've got our site set at Enterix, you know, we're really modernizing the entire industry. You know, we speak a lot about a concept that we call the network of networks or collective movement. Um, and we're seeing that start to build across the industry. There's, there's so much value to the entire U.S. utility sector by thinking collectively, you know, by building architectures, designs, you know, supporting supply chain growth and R&D that helps everybody. Um, you know, really puts more buying power, more capability into all of the utilities who choose to participate. Um, and we're seeing that movement start to build. Will uh, the consumer sense that this is going on, or? you will be unaffected. No, I believe they will. I, I think us as consumers are even more demanding of our energy suppliers than we were you know, five or 10 years ago. Um, I think we've all lived through the consequences of a storm or an outage, um, you know, or seeing our energy bills um, you know, gradually creep up. I think these systems are targeted at increasing reliability. Ultimately, there's improvement to um, you know, the cost effectiveness of other programs as utilities start seeking the integration of renewables and more reliable energy sources. And being able to do it all um, you know, across the entire operating service territory is a big reason why private digital you know, communications infrastructure you know, is being embraced across all of the, the, the U.S. utilities, rural or urban. Ron, very interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you, Will. Appreciate you. Fundamental about what's happening in their companies. The only conversation is the transition to electric vehicles. Uh, they are 100% in, as are the manufacturers, most at least around the world. And so this has the feeling of having it crystallized, and it's, it's got the full energy of the industry behind it. When that happens, things move more quickly than you think they will. Which is why I'm really happy that the infrastructure bill put seven and a half billion in for this charging infrastructure move because it's like reliability in our industry. The one thing that can derail the transition to electric is people finding out that I can't get it from here to there in an easy way. So we got to get that done. Uh, but they have to bit in their teeth. GM bringing out 30 new electric vehicle models between now and Brins is a partner at Guidehouse, a globe-circling consultancy. The general view of this conference is that we're going to make carbon neutrality by the middle of the century. I think uh, we have to make it happen. Uh, there's no real choice. Um, and I actually think that we have the mechanisms uh, in place to a great extent. Um, I think we have international uh, as well as you know, support at the federal level to make this happen. Uh, I think there's a lot of um, uh, uh, commitment uh, also with large corporations uh, and then obviously the utilities as well. Um, I do think that uh, we're not moving fast enough um, and we need to stop you know, coming up with all sorts of excuses why we cannot you know, move uh, at the pace that we need to move. Um, I hear a lot of people saying, 
well, you know, we, we're not going to be able to produce those electric vehicles that we need. Well, I think the, the car manufacturers will produce uh, those vehicles. I, I predicted a tipping point seven years ago where, you know, Tesla would build 500,000 electric vehicles a year. They, they reached that point a year earlier than they, they planned. And I think the other car manufacturers will do the same. Um, the other excuse that I hear is, oh, you know, the regulators, you know, don't support, you know, uh, some of the energy transition plans and investments that need to be made. Um, well, I think if customers want it, um, uh, the government wants it, the world needs it, then I think utilities have the responsibility to push through those, those obstacles and, and make it happen. The grid has become so much different than in the past, uh, where you had, you know, central station generation, transmission, distribution. If you continue to look at the grid that way, you will never come to the conclusion that there, there will be enough electricity. The grid now is an energy cloud, where energy gets produced, you know, still with some large power plants, um, but also locally. And, and, and the impact of distributed energy resources and the, 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 the ability to generate electricity closer to the source are endless, uh, and, and the technologies exist. So now it's a matter of you know, actually you know, supporting these programs where you know, energy doesn't only get generated in, you know, in our, you know, through, through wind or, or, or solar or, or hydro or nuclear, which we still need, by the way, but also at the edge of the grid, and that's going to create um, uh, uh, the, the, the supply that we need. And then the second part of that story is, is that manage the grid as, as, as one. Um, uh, meaning that you know, use the electricity smart at the right time. Produce electricity uh, uh, smart, and and you know, technology will help do uh, do that for us as well. Jan, that was stimulating. Thank you so much for coming on the broadcast. You're welcome, and uh, looking forward to uh, to the next one. Hans Kobler is the managing partner at Energy Impact Partners, an extraordinary venture capital organization that looks for the difficult, the high risk, like storage and energy. Would that be a fair assessment, Hans? Well, Energy Impact Partners focuses on all technologies that are necessary to get us to net zero. So we invest in what we call proven building blocks that are ready to scale, and we invest in technologies that still have a little bit of time to, to, to get there. From a investment perspective, you know, the, to get to net zero, you have to decarbonize supply we on a good track to get there, electrify demand, but then you have to deal with all the intermittency that happens where the wind doesn't blow, the sun doesn't shine, and we, we always had intermittency on the demand side, but now we have intermittency on the supply side as well. So uh, we did some research in Rhode Island, for example, in a fully electrified economy, you would have five times the peak power of the base load, and you can't really build a church for Easter Sunday, so, so you have to balance that and storage is a key element of that. One of the things which came up in your session was that natural gas is a very fine way to store energy. Well, it's, it's, it is the best medium to deal with you know, peak shaving. It's great for resilience. We have a, co a company called Enchanted Rock that provide the uh, resilience solutions for microgrids, for data centers and you know, shopping malls. Um, so natural gas is here to stay. So you put money where the need is in order to make money, which sounds well, like a rather yeah, neat the, equation. The, the, uh, so our, you know, we have a simple path. We work with strategic partners that we try to, to um, help on their path to net zero. Um, with them, we scale technology companies that will have more impact on the environment, and along the way we make more money. So it's a triple win. 
ultimately. It's a great pleasure to talk to you. You're a very interesting man. I'm sitting in the car of the year, as defined by Motor Trend magazine. It is a lucid, not a name you know, but a name you probably will know, because it is a stunning vehicle. It is a beaut to look at, just absolutely something that makes you think it should be on the Corniche in the south of France. It belongs in one of those 1950s movies and it is a wonder because it is all electric and it goes uh, 520 miles on a single charge making it the champion for range of electric cars. With me is Michael Tubman of Lucid Motors. Michael, tell me more about this car. Where can I buy it? Where is it made? And uh, what are its prospects? Thanks for sitting in it. We're really glad to have you here. I'd rather take it home, but I'm <laughs> just sitting in it. Well, if you want to do that, you go to one of our studios around the country. Um, we have a studio model, not a dealership. So you can go to maybe your local mall um, or a, a station like that where you can uh, design your car online and then order it um, to have it delivered directly to your home. Fantastic. What are its performance parameters beyond the 520 miles range, which makes it a champion uh, way above Tesla and all the others? Yeah, absolutely. The range is a big factor in the purchase of an electric vehicle for most consumers. Another thing that people are really concerned about is how much time it takes them to charge up. And for us, we take the fastest power charging available. We can charge it over 300 kilowatt power. And that means that you can charge 300 miles of charge in about 22 minutes. So that's pretty fast. And uh, these are made in Arizona? Yes, we're an American company. We're based in California and we have a factory in Casa Grande, Arizona. And your headquarters is actually in California? Yes, it's in Newark, California. Okay, very good. And you have another facility in Saudi Arabia? Uh, we've announced uh, overseas expansion plans uh, in Saudi Arabia for another factory, but we're also selling already in Canada and in Europe. And how many orders do you have for this little beauty, this amazing piece of automotive engineering? We already have more than 30,000 reservations. Fantastic. Uh, what's the competition like? What is the nearest car to this one? in the marketplace? Well, we think that the Lucid is really in a class of its own. Um, the technology and the interior luxury speaks for itself as a luxury sedan. It is very comfortable, I will say, and I could imagine driving it for all of its 520 miles, but of course you need to recharge a bit before the end. Um, Lucid is the name, and Lucid goes from zero to 60. Am I right, Michael? in two and a half seconds. That's right. When would you need that amount of acceleration besides after a bank robbery? <laughs> I can think of plenty of different opportunities to use that type of acceleration, but we always recommend you stay at the speed limit. Michael, it's super to talk to you about the Lucid and good luck with this very exciting uh, vehicle. Thank you very much. That's our show for today. I hope you're weak is bathed in light. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, 
wherever you listen. We 